Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. I'm Eric Flickinger, and we're continuing now in our journey through the book of Hebrews with lesson number six, Jesus the Faithful Priest. With me once again is the author of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide on the book of Hebrews, Dr. Felix Cortez. He is the Associate Professor of New Testament Literature at Andrews University. Pastor Felix, welcome once again. A pleasure to be here. So let's look at Jesus here as the faithful priest. We, the reference here for the memory text is Hebrews 8, verse number 1. I'll read that, but then get a little bit of background and kind of dive into what we're looking at this week. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So Jesus here is pictured as a high priest. When we look at the role of priests, even in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, it talks about priests, and then we get to chapter 8, and Paul says, now here's the main point, and he talks about Jesus and his role. What's the significance of, of the priesthood and the high priest, and why is it so significant that, significant that Jesus is our high priest where he is right now? You know, the role of the priest is really important. In the Latin language, pontifex is a word for priest, and pontifex means bridge maker. The, the priest bridges between God and the people. And um, that is true. The priest had, especially the high priest, had a double function. The priest had the function of representing God to the people. He spoke for God. He blessed the people in the name of God. He was a messenger of the laws of God, etc. But the priest also was a representative of the people. Uh, the high priest had this um, plaque here in the chest that contained all the names of the tribes of the people of Israel. What he meant is that he carried them. He was their representative. He also had the names of the 12 tribes in two stones in their shoulders. He was the representative of the people. So Jesus is the one who is really our high priest. He represents God to us. He speaks to us in the name of God. He brings the message from God, the good news from God. But Jesus is also the one who represents us before the Father. I'm very glad because we have a very good representative, a perfect representative. So, so Jesus is our perfect representative. He is our perfect priest. But then there's this passage in 1 Peter 2.9 that you draw our attention to where we are called a royal priesthood. How is it that we, imperfect though we are, uh, are to be a priesthood also, you know, the same functions that Jesus has for us, we have also for those around us, even though in a limited, um, in a limited way, because we also speak for God. When we share the scriptures to our neighbors, to those who are beside us, to our children, what we're doing is speaking in the name of God. You see, we're, we're sharing his, uh, his message. We also represent uh, those who are around us sometimes before God. When people ask us, 
to pray for them. When we do a prayer in behalf of other persons, we some in some sense are carrying a mediating function. We're saying, God, we ask your blessing upon, upon him or her. When we pray for our children, we are praying as representatives to some extent. It's not a full extent, but we play a role in that. So we have a very important function to play. Do you see, the, the, the third um, uh, commandment is do not carry the name of God in vain, right? Um, do not take the name of God in vain, but it is also do not carry the name of God in vain. When we identify with God, in some sense, we carry his name. We represent him before others. And one of the things that God asks us, represent me well. And we do that. People who stop being, stop believing in God, sometimes they stop believing God because his representatives give him a bad name. That's what happens sometimes with, with church. I see that on a very regular basis with people who've kind of turned away from God or turned away from the church. It's not by and large that they've lost faith in God, but they see his children misbehaving. And, and so that paints a bad picture of the one that we're supposed to be representing. And unfortunately, uh, that causes a great deal of damage. Now, talking about priests and the priesthood, there's a section here of Hebrews chapter 7, which generates a lot of questions. And I want to read the very tail end of chapter 6, and then down into the first few verses of chapter 7. It says in chapter 6, verse 20, Speaking of Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. What is this passage, this this priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek? How does Jesus fit in with this and why is it important? This passage has attracted a lot of attention, especially because of that verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Who is this person, right? Who is this person? And in what sense Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? Um, some people think that this Melchizedek is a heavenly being. Uh, in fact, it is possible that some of the Dead Sea Scrolls thought that they, they it's possible that they call the king, uh, the ruler of the angels, the gen general of the heavenly forces, a uh, certain Melchizedek. But it is, uh, it is debated. And some people think that really is not calling him Melchizedek, but king of righteousness, because his nemesis is Melchizedek, which, mean, which means king of wickedness. So probably this is not a name, but a title in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In, 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 in the Bible, in, in Hebrews, it is a name. But let's say, for the sake of the argument, that Melchizedek was a heavenly being, okay? That took human form and met Abraham 
in the time of the the time of the our, uh, forefather, right? Time of Abraham. If that was the case, you would be looking here at the fourth member of the Trinity, right? <laughs> because you have a person who has no beginning of days, no end of life, no father, no mother, etc. This is a divine person. Now, is Melchizedek a divine person? What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that the New Testament, you don't have in the New Testament a record of his birth. You don't have a record of his death. You don't have a record of who his mother was. Uh, you don't have a record of who his father was. And you don't have a record of his genealogy. And then the author here say, is saying, the fact that you don't have a record of that makes him an example of what kind of person, kind of priest Jesus is going to be. Who, just as that example, right, that parable, that type, Jesus is really without father, without mother, without beginning of days, nor end of life, right? Other persons think that Melchizedek is... Uh, Jesus himself taking human form in, 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 in the time of Abraham. But that is not possible because if Hebrews is taking human form in the Old Testament, what Hebrews 7, if Melchizedek is taking form in the, in the Old Testament in the person of Melchizedek, then the problem is that Hebrews will be comparing Jesus with Jesus. Jesus was made like Melchizedek, which is Jesus himself. So it doesn't make sense. So the only, the only way to understand Hebrews 7, 1 to 3 is that Melchizedek was a Canaanite king who believed in God, was a priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek understood that he was a servant of God and therefore he gave him the tithes. And that the fact that Melchizedek, the Bible doesn't mention his father, mother, birth, death, genealogy, is because scripture is making him into an illustration of Jesus, who Jesus was going really to be. Jesus was going to be really without father, without mother, without beginning of days, without end of life, uh, living forever. That is basically, Melchizedek is an illustration of Jesus. Now, it is uh, another thing that other people ask me, I'm sorry for interrupting, is, could a Canaanite king really believe, really be a priest of God? How can a Canaanite be a priest of God? You see, I, I think it was like three years ago, two or three years ago, I went to, to Venezuela. And I had read a story about Venezuela in one book about that a tribe of Indians that were completely separated from civilization. But the, the chief of this tribe wanted to be the best chief, and he prayed to the spirit, the great spirit in which he believed. This was a pagan uh, person. He prayed and he told him, you know, I want to be the best chief of my nation. And he fell into a kind of vision. He had a vision. And, and then he learned about the Sabbath. He learned about the cleaner and clean foods. He learned about all the, what the Bible says, no two wives, no, no, uh, eh, eh, all the, all the gospel. And this tribe became an, you know, a tribe living according to the gospel, according to the Bible. 
And I said, you know, this is beautiful, but did this really happen? So I went to Venezuela and I asked uh, a person there in the, in the university, is there here a person from the Indian tribe Pemones? Because I knew these were the Pemones. Is there any person here from the Pemones? He says, yes, there is a theology student here that comes from the Pemones. And I, and I t- told this person, I, can I speak with him? Yes, you can. So I, I, I invited him. Uh, so he came and we talked and I told him, I have heard these stories. Is that true? Is it really true that one of your forefathers, because this is more than 100 years ago, is it true that one of your fathers had these visions and you begin to worship on the Sabbath and you have all these things? And, you, and he told me, you know, that is true. And he told me the story again and things that I didn't knew before. So yes, even among pagan people, God can manifest himself. Just as he did with the Pemones. Yes, of course, God could have done it with uh, Melchizedek, a Canaanite king. That was really a, a servant of God, a priest of God. You know, that story also reminds me at least a little bit of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, how God gave him a dream, gave him a vision. He was clearly far from God, but God was able to work through him as well, which gives us a little bit of encouragement, I think, today. If God can work through people like that, maybe he can work through us as well. We're going to continue taking a look here at Jesus the Faithful Priest in just a moment, but I want to encourage you once again, if you haven't already been to the It Is Written store and picked up the companion volume to this quarter's study on the book of Hebrews. Be sure to do that. It is found at itiswritten.shop. You can pick it up, and it will add immense depth and breadth to your understanding of the book of Hebrews. We're going to be back in just a moment as we continue looking at Jesus, the faithful priest. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about studying the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious as well. Well, here's what you do if you want to dig deeper into God's Word. Go to itiswritten.study for the It Is Written Bible Study Guides online. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will take you through the major teachings of the Bible. You'll be blessed, and it's something you'll want to tell others about as well. itiswritten.study. Go further. itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are on lesson number six of the book of Hebrews. I want to dive into Hebrews chapter seven right now, looking at Jesus and his effectiveness, uh, efficacy as a priest. Look at Hebrews seven, verse number 11. It says, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? We just looked at that and not be called according to the order of Aaron. Evidently, these Old Testament priests, this priesthood, didn't do everything that they were supposed to do, that it was supposed to accomplish. We're looking now for a more effective priest. How is Jesus that more effective priest for us? Well, let's say that all the priests in the Old Testament were only performing an illustration of the truth. When they were sacrificing uh, lambs, they were just making an illustration of what was going to happen with Jesus, the real lamb of God. Whenever they did all the rituals and activities of the uh, Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant, they were performing illustrations about what was going to come in the future. So 
yes, the illustrations are not the real thing, right? The illustration is just that, uh, a, a way to point you forward to the reality, which is Jesus. Um, so we need to understand then that Jesus provides what the Levitical priests were only able to promise, right? God is promising through them. Jesus brings the reality. Now, the promise is important, and the job of the Levitical priests is important. They are necessary. They are what help us understand what was going to happen with Jesus. But when Jesus came, that ended. Because when the reality comes, the illustration doesn't matter anymore, right? Okay, so Jesus comes and he, he fulfills everything that they were, were pointing toward. And Hebrews chapter 7 here talks a, a great deal about Jesus and his, the facets of his priesthood. I'm looking now at verse number 16. And it says again, speaking here of Jesus, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. So what we're looking here is an eternal priest. Now, I suppose if we're going to have an eternal priest, Jesus is probably the best one that we're going to get. Uh, other priests have had some flaws, some shortcomings, uh, some areas where they didn't quite measure up. But Jesus is our eternal priest. Why do we need an eternal priest? And, and why is it so important that Jesus fulfills that? Well, there are several reasons. One of them, if you go to verse, a few verses later, you're going to find uh, Hebrews 7.22. that says, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety or warrantor of a very covenant. You see, in the Old Testament, you have, and, and uh, in the promises of God, you have that God has made an oath to us. Now, when are these oaths uh, valid? They're valid as long as the one who made the oath lives. And as long as the one who received the oath lives, right? If God made the oath, the oath is valid eternally because he lives forever. Not only that, he is all-powerful. So he doesn't have any excuses. He has all the power, so he has to fulfill the oath, right? But the other thing is that he made the oath to Jesus, you are a priest forever. God will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The oath is made to Jesus. And it is very important that he is an eternal priest because Jesus lives forever. Therefore, God's oath remains forever. The eternity of Jesus, the indestructibility of the life of Jesus makes the promises of the new covenant eternal valid forever. Jesus' life is a guarantee of eternity for us. God will never change his mind because he has made an oath and Jesus lives forever. So as long as Jesus lives, God is, God has to continue to fulfill that oath. You see, what is happening here is God speaking the language of human beings to telling us God is going to fulfill what he wants to fulfill with you and he's going to make an oath so that you're sure. God loves us. But if you want a signed document, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to give you a warranty, an eternal warranty. That is basically what is happening there. 
So that's not a bad deal. I mean, the new covenant is a, is a wonderful covenant. God wants to write his, his laws on our hearts and write them in our minds. And he says, I'm going to fulfill my end of the, of the bargain as long as I live. Mm-hmm. And since he's living forever, oh, that's encouraging. We don't have to worry about his end of, uh, of things failing or changing or, or falling short in any way, shape, or form. And on Thursday's lesson, we find another element of Jesus' priesthood that should give us encouragement, should give us hope, should give us something to continue to look forward to. In Hebrews 7.26, it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. As you look back at the Old Testament priesthood, many of the priests, many of, of even the high priests, fell far short of being sinless. In fact, some of them had a lengthy record of sins. But here we've got a picture of a high priest who is, it says, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. That's encouraging. It is. Uh, the fact that we have a sinless priest, Eric, um, tells us that Jesus is really able to cleanse us. One of the um, one of the conditions of a perfect sacrifice is that the sacrifice is perfect. You cannot come with to God with an imperfect lamb, right? If the lamb is lame or is sick, half dead, or, you know, blind, that is not an acceptable sacrifice. That, the perfection of the lamb pointed forward to the perfection of Jesus morally. Jesus doesn't have anything that God can object to. When Jesus provides his life, as a sacrifice for sin, he provided a perfect life. You go to Hebrews 9.14, for example. That is mentioned in Hebrews 9.14. He says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus had to be the perfect priest. Otherwise, he could not save us. And, and Jesus did that. We find a, a beautiful description of this in Hebrews 10, 5 to 10, where it says, Jesus, in coming to the world, says, Father, I have come to do your will. Your law is in my heart. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the kind of obedience God wanted, an obedience that comes from the heart. Your law is in my heart. So Jesus fulfills perfectly the conditions of the covenant. That's why his sacrifice is effective. That's why his ministry is effective. Because he's not offering sacrifices for himself, but for us. The problem, one of the problems, if you go to Hebrews 7, there were two problems basically with the Levitical priesthood. One problem was their sinfulness. You cannot make clean something when you yourself are unclean. So Levitical priesthood could not provide perfection. 
Number two, they died. They had to be constantly substituted. Jesus does not have any of those problems. So we've got a picture here of a, of a priest who succeeded where all of the earthly priests fell short. We have a fulfillment of things where in Old Testament times there was only this, this model, this, uh, this example, as it were. And now we have Jesus, the faithful priest, who is doing everything correctly, will continue to do everything correctly, won't ever die. And so, so his end of the covenant is never going to come to an end. We, we find ourselves perhaps a little challenged to even wrap our minds around how this is possible because every person that we have ever known has fallen short of perfection. Every individual who we've ever known has in one way, shape, or form let us down. But we have Jesus here being a faithful priest, a perfect priest, a sinless priest who's going to live forever. How can that give us, how, how can we how can we lift our minds above what we have seen and experienced in this life to begin to comprehend what it is that Jesus has for us? So, yes, the, the, the life of Jesus is the real ticket, right, for, for us. One of the things that I would like to, 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 to say, for example, is that what was not possible to Abraham... Abraham was not able to inherit the land. He made a lot of mistakes. And so came Moses. He wasn't able to enter the land. He made mistakes. You go to David. He was not able to build the temple. He made mistakes. Solomon. All those promises were unfulfilled because of sins, sinfulness. Because Sinfulness bars you from inheriting what God wants you to inherit. But all of them had one thing that was right. And the one thing that was right, they had a son, right? One son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ did what no one of them was able to do. In some sense, their son redeemed them. You saw, you know, I have two children. And... Um, one of them is a very good musician. He redeemed me in the sense that he plays the piano as I wish I could play the piano. You see? Um, the other one has done things and has studied in places where I wish I would have. You see? And so they redeemed, redeemed me in that sense. Jesus did what Adam, Abraham, David, you and I have not been able to do. But we can say, God, I have Jesus. Could I receive the benefits through him? And God says, of course you can. He is your ticket uh, to, uh, to, to, to get those um, uh, experiences and they get those benefits that you couldn't otherwise experience. Beautifully said. So friend, you have a son in Jesus through whom you can experience the glories of eternal life. He wants that for you and he wants you to have victory in this life as well. So don't give up. Don't lose courage. Jesus will see you through. We look forward to seeing you again next week when we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. God bless you and we'll see you then. <music> 